Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So our podcast is called Right and Wrong. Are these your notes? These these your notes about what we're going to say? Anything is a short answer. (laughs) So how many novels did you not finish? Oh my God, so many. (laughs) It was perfect. What are you talking about? This is nonsense. Ooh, a spicy question. I love it. (laughs) This is it, guys. The big secret to getting published is you have to write a good book. (laughs) You heard it here first. (laughs) Hello and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. If you are a longtime listener of the show, you'll you'll already know her. She is a young adult author with a brand spanking new novel out, part of the team over at Right Mentor, and one third of the Chosen Ones and Other Tropes podcast. It's Melissa Welliver. Woo! Hello. Ta-da. It's She's me. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while since we uh, recorded this podcast together. Mm, yeah, it has actually been a really long time. It feels yeah. long. But thank, thanks for coming back on. Um, let's talk about the new book, My Love Life and the Apocalypse. How Ooh. how how confident are you feeling about your elevator pitch? <laughs> Very confident. Oh, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so My Love Life and the Apocalypse is about an android teenage boy called Echo, who he thinks he's the last thinking thing on planet Earth until a girl falls from the sky in the middle of his abandoned city called Pandora and reveals that all humans have been frozen for 100 years and they have to go on a road trip across post-apocalyptic America to try and find everyone and wake them up. Mm. Save the world. Save the world. Low stakes. Low stakes. <laughs> slow burn romance. Yeah. Dystopia. Ticking yeah. all the boxes. Of course. It's it, it's great. I've I've been reading it. Um, I'm I'm about two thirds of the way through at this point. But interesting. There's a distinction to make here because this is not your first book uh, that's been put out into the world. Way back in um, episode twenty six, I think. Yeah was your first appearance on the podcast uh you were here talking all yeah. about um the undying tower so indeed how different has this launch been to that one yeah so um i'm happy to uh, explain a little bit about this because actually funnily enough even i did not fully understand a lot of bits until i was talking to my agent when signing different contracts mm-hmm. so um undying tower came out with an amazing and small presses are incredible and do the work of many, many people with very few people. Um, so the Undying Tower came out with a press called Agora, and they are what's known as sort of like a, a non-trade publisher. So a trade publisher is um, going to be doing print runs, and print runs are things that bookshops look for. It's not necessarily a hard and fast rule. There are some great self-published books that get into bookshops. And in fact, when I was chatting to somebody in Wardstones the other day, they said they're trying to get more self-published books in there, which is awesome. Um, however, a lot of bookshops still fall back on the heavily discounted and easy to get to. And there's a million different reasons that would take on an entire podcast episode to get into. But essentially, a trade publisher is somebody that is getting those books into bookshops. Now, when I was with Agora, with the Undying Tower, I was in a few bookshops because I had a lot of support. It was great. But we were print on demand. 
mostly through Amazon, partly through Clay's. Um, so they did do a very small, I suppose, technically print run of a couple of hundred copies, which is small for a print run. Most print runs are over 2,000 copies, and depending on how famous you are. And then you might have like 100,000 copies or something. But um, yeah, so essentially The Undying Tower came out as um, a small press, small print run, very low marketing budget, but it had a really great uh, reception online, which was awesome. However, sadly, Agora Press then folded. Um, so they gave me the rights back and I've been self-publishing it ever since. Um, but when I say self-publishing, oh my gosh, nowhere near the levels that other people have to go through for self-publishing. <laughs> I already had the entire manuscript edited. I already had the cover. I already had the set and things that cost thousands of pounds. They were all just given to me for free, which was awesome. Um, so obviously... I'm sure some people have been wondering about what's happening with sequels and stuff. And the tricky thing was I was sort of dithering about um, how much it would cost to publish a sequel. It's actually not cheap and really not cheap. And to do properly, I wanted to make sure I did the first book justice and especially those like grassroots fans that had been so supportive of me and make sure I did like the proper cover, get the cover artist back in on that. And so it's been really tricky. Um Hopefully, fingers crossed, in future, I can announce some really exciting news about The Undying Tower, but as in typical publishing style, I can't say anything right <laughs> now. Um, so, yes, yeah, so this is considered, My Love Life in the Apocalypse, long story short, is considered my print debut mm -hmm. because it's print runs, which is just very silly, long marketing language that I'm sure lots of readers don't even care if they have a self-published yeah. book or a printed book. But, yeah, that's the long and short of it. So it is complicated, but they're calling it a debut again, and that's why. Okay, okay, okay. Because yeah. it, because Undyne Tower wasn't officially like a proper print run. Yes. So it was like digital first is right. a, maybe a phrase people might have heard with those kinds of um, printers. So they pushed quite hard online uh, Kindle sales and then printing on demand from Amazon, which would come like straight on Prime or whatever. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great, great, great. So there are things happening behind the scenes with Undyne Tower. Hopefully we can get an, uh, an update and some news at some point soon. Yeah, I'm now, hoping really soon, but <laughs> fingers now. crossed. But for now, <laughs> it's it's all about my love life in the apocalypse, um, it which is. is another dystopian novel. Why so dystopian, Melissa? <laughs> Why the long dystopian? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, what's funny is um, if anyone's read The Undying Tower, it's uh, almost grim dark i would say it's a quite a dark mm -hmm. story um i mean hopefully there is i suppose a little beacon of hope at the end without spoiling anything but yeah it's a, it's a lot it's a lot less um hopeful than say this book which is actually apparently as it says on the back funny romantic <laughs> and uplifting which uh was a surprise to me no i'm joking um i just i don't know i think i love dystopia but i think after the pandemic and i wrote this in lockdown i was just thinking too dark things were too dark for me. It, before the pandemic, I was quite happy. And I think people went one way or the other, didn't they? People either ran towards watching on Netflix, like Contagion, or ran towards watching Wedding Crashes. Like, it was one <laughs> and so I was like, let's mix them together. Because I do love dystopian, but I think I needed a little bit more lighthearted take on dystopia. So mm -hmm. that's where the romance really crept in as well. Uh, so it's quite different to stuff I've written before, but also in the same vein, it's still dystopian. I see. Yeah. And I mean, dystopia is, in terms of, dystopia is not really a genre. It's more of a setting, I guess, yeah, kind of a genre. Fair. But it's like, it's such a good one almost because it's, there's like an infinite number of ways it can be from like, sh you know, sort of near future gritty, yeah. like something like The Last of Us 
to something like my love life and the apocalypse where like it's obviously more distant in the future because humanity has created these like fully independent robots and the, the, the technology yeah. is far more advanced than the than we have now so i mean in a similar way to historical fiction i guess where it's if a certain time period becomes uh oversaturated like if there's loads of like world war ii stuff people yeah. are like okay I like historical fiction, but I've just been so lost in World War II at the moment. And then, and then suddenly it might pivot to like Napoleonic or something like that. And it's like, oh, okay, this is a new and interesting thing whilst also being in the same genre. Yeah. So it's a cool genre. Do you think you'll, you'll for, for future works, do you think you'll stay in, in dystopian sort of post-apocalyptic stuff? Oh, I do love it. I just love <laughs> the idea of, I know this is so psychopathic, but I'm a bit of a prepper as well. And I just love the idea of like everything going away tomorrow. Like I'm applying for a mortgage at the minute and it's just hell. And I just keep thinking <laughs> like if the world ended tomorrow, I would never have to speak to like these solicitors, love you solicitors ever again. Um, so I, I'm very much a fan of living in that world. To me, that is fantasy. Like just mm -hmm. taking away, it's like still life. I can still do stuff, but just taking away all of those pressures of just a structured society. Um, I think though, it's speculative has always been my thing. I do like the real world with a twist of something else. I'm not very much into high fantasy or like space opera, very deep future um, stuff where it doesn't even reference planet Earth. I quite like ending the world multiple times. It obviously ties in with post-apocalyptic fiction dystopia. Yeah. I think someone said to me once, like, oh, have you ever thought of, um, are all your books set in the same universe? And I'm like, well, no, because I keep ending it different ways. <laughs> so surely unless like thousands of years are passing in between each civilization, absolutely not, sadly enough. But uh, To be honest, as I'm reading My Love Life in the Apocalypse, there's a part of me that's like, this could, with a few like, corrections here and there be the same universe <laughs> <laughs> and that is my incredibly skilled writing for my voice Jamie, that you are picking up on oh okay 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 it's not just me copying what i've done before it's skill <laughs> i mean it's it's very very different and it's, it's obviously <laughs> a different world just based on technologies and things like that and yeah i guess what, what you you're talking about when you say it's interesting to see like all of the kind of what we know as the kind of society break down um, and then it's between your, the two books you have out, you've gone very conversely, like, so with, with the Undying Tower, this kind of new, very authoritarian structure has kind of replaced what we know. Whereas in My Love Life in the Apocalypse, uh, there's no structure because there's nobody, it's just Echo kind of wandering around by himself and everywhere is deserted. Yes, that's very true. And what's funny is when I was writing this, I think I love dystopian. It is my absolute favorite setting, as mm -hmm. you were saying before. Like, technically, it is a setting. I totally agree. However, when I was writing this in 2020, this was still drawing, and I'm sure people remember this. So obviously, TikTok has had a massive resurgence in 2023 with Hunger Games. And everyone's suddenly talking about Hunger Games again, which I love because I love Hunger Games. And obviously, there's the prequel movie coming out later in the year. Um, and I think what's funny about it is, um, if you guys like read Hunger Games, like I did as sort of a teenager or slightly into my twenties, that it was not, it was not popular after the Hunger Games. It got massively saturated. Dystopian became like a dirty word. I remember querying and an agent coming back to me and trying to help me. And they were like, do not use the word dystopian in your query. Oh. Because it's not very popular and it's massively saturated. Use something more broad, like speculative. Like use a broader umbrella oh. <laughs> or something like, yeah, exactly. And it just was not popular. And then what's so funny is this book's come out. And in a way, when I was writing it, I still love dystopian and it definitely has elements of dystopia. However, it's certainly more towards the post-apocalyptic. Like I was watching a lot of Walking Dead during lockdown, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. 
And of course, I get like my banner for Twitter that Chicken House was very kindly made for me. And it says, you know, the rising star of dystopian fiction. I'm like, (gasps) they've sworn on my banner. I'm like, oh, I have to say that word. It's it's so funny how these things come around, isn't it? And maybe you should just stick to what you love. And eventually every dog has its day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Every dystopia has its day. Yeah, we were talk- I was talking to last week's episode with Ale- Alexandra Bracken, and she was saying, she was saying what, what the, the you know the the different genres. It's kind of hard to define and things like that. But mm-hmm. uh, I was saying, yeah, it's like at one point we were calling it urban fantasy, and and then she was like, yes. yeah, I think we're calling it contemporary fantasy now. And yeah. it's like <laughs> I've heard that. I've heard like urban's become an unpopular commentary on that type of fancy and it's supposed to be contemporary fancy and i suppose like um alex's books are all like i love alexander racken i've like read all her books and all of them technically there's a big difference so for instance some of them are sort of fancy mythology but set in modern day new york but then other Mm -hmm. ones are dystopian and more that ya like very firmly teen ya market however they're all speculative this is this umbrella that i'm talking about this very large umbrella Yes. Yeah. yeah. Spe- speculative <laughs> is just anything where it's like near future yeah. could potentially happen if you're, when you're speculating to. on a what if scenario. It feels like you could just shove it under speculative. Yeah. It's fine. Although I feel like it's, I feel like it's, you're using it loosely if you're applying it to fantasy. Yeah. Cause there's so a point true. where you're like, but are people going to suddenly like grow wings and start shooting lasers from their eyes? Uh, <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. It's not that kind of world, then. <laughs> Maybe. I don't, who knows? Yeah. It's mobile phones. It's 5G is going to make us all sprout wings. <laughs> oh, no, don't start that. <laughs> um, let's get back onto you. If you've, so anyone listening, if you've heard uh, Melissa previously on the podcast, you will know that she is um, an intense planner and advocate for the cult of planning. Uh, <laughs> is, is that still the case? Yes. So this one, My Love Life in the Apocalypse, I wrote, obviously this was a long time ago. So yeah, I'm talking like July 2020, nearly three years ago I wrote this. Um, And just so people know in terms of timelines and maybe COVID affected this a little bit, this was like a pretty solid run. So if you like, I already had an agent. I thought of this idea back in about Jan, Feb 2020. I went on a couple of writing retreats. Thought of the idea in a, in a couple of uh, character building workshops. I thought of Echo and Pandora, but didn't really do any more on it. Then the pandemic hit. So I thought, oh, I'd best like write this book. So I spent probably from like March, April plotting it. And then in either May or June, I think I spent about four or five weeks writing it. But I had a really solid plot and literally nothing else to do all day, every day. So it was really quick to write. And then it went to editing, didn't need too much editing. I think we sent it out in October, November that same year. And it got bought in around about April, so about six months later, which is pretty average. And then yeah. it's being published two years after that, just so people know like how long the timelines are. And that's not unusual even during COVID when everything was, of course, mm-hmm. just crazy timelines. No one knew what was going on. Um, so yeah, I'm still massively a plotter. I just don't think I would get things done if I didn't plot. I just don't think, I don't think I'd have enough time and I like to write really quickly because I like to come up with a really strong voice, hopefully, and then write in that voice. And it's really difficult to get back into every time you reopen the document. Yeah. So if I didn't have a plan for the actual plot, it would be really hard to get back into the voice. When you talk about, interesting talking about voices. So um, My Love Life in the Apocalypse is a dual point of view uh, story. So you, but every other... Uh, chapter flips between the two main characters the protagonists yeah 
do you when you were writing the different chapters did you sort of write all of one side and then write all the other do you kind of try and consciously write in a different sort of slightly different style when you're writing the different characters point of views yeah so I'd never done it before this and then since I've actually started two books where I do the same thing so I really enjoyed (laughs) doing that but yeah when I started because I'm a plotter I had actually never written out of order and so I was writing in order and I was alternating the voice and that was really hard like I would pretty much have to finish a whole 3,000 word chapter in a day or else it would be too difficult to switch halfway through the day. So the next day, if I finished that chapter and then I had to move into Echo's voice from Pandora's, mm. it would be too hard. Yeah. Um, however, um, because I had the plot, I suddenly realized I could write out of order if I wanted to. So I did write a few chats. So I think when I'd been about halfway through, I definitely got the voice like down. I knew exactly what I wanted to do with that. And I'd written a few chapters, like maybe six chapters in each voice. I then wrote all of Echo's and then went back and wrote all of Pandora's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. There was maybe the odd time where if it was a quite an exciting scene and they were both in it anyway, I would do both sides. But mm-hmm. most of the time I did then start writing in chunks. Yeah. And it was much easier. When you were editing, did you kind of uh take just all of like Echo's chapters and edit those as a block and then sort of swap brains and take all of Pandora's chapters? Yeah, that would have been smart. No, I did not do that. <laughs> did not. That's a really good point. I definitely could have done that. I did not. No, I um, I'm really bad when I'm. I do. I reread the book at the end stages, like in proofreading. Mm-hmm. But in between each each individual round of editing, I actually don't read it from for beginning to end. I right. go through, find the notes. I use Control F as my friend in the document to find things and find and replace stuff like that. And then I just read it through near the end. I think it's because I have tried doing it before. Where I've read it lots of times, but I just get really fatigued and then I miss stuff anyway yeah, because yeah, I'm just yeah. bored of like reading it over and over, even when it's your own story. If I, if I, I could read someone else's book more over and over than my own story like it just gets a little bit boring and repetitive um so no I didn't actually I just worked through the notes I've got I mean I'm lucky enough that because I started this with an agent I didn't have to do any editing on my own so Uh it wasn't like I was reading through to find stuff that I could see was wrong sometimes when I'm writing even if I've plotted I realize there's a hole or something and I will make a note in a separate document saying I know I need to do this or I know I need to go back and change this person's age or whatever it may be so I do do a little bit of that myself and then I rest that document that just has all my little notes in. But I had Lucy, my agent, to um, go through, read it and give me an edit letter. So I didn't have to read it back through again until a bit later in the process. Um, so it could, could stay a little bit more fresh. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's, I mean, yeah, there's a big difference with once you have sort of a support team. You know, whether Massively. It's, yeah, whether it's an agent or if you're if you're under contract, it's it's... You know, it can be a f- full editor who exactly. is actually working through the concept before you even start writing the prose. Yes. Um, versus uh, if you are, you know, working by yourself, trying to identify your own. So, and I, the recommendation I would give there is, yeah. do, you know, do drafts um, on your own work, but get other people to read it. Yeah, because somebody else reading it, it's like when I went, so, you know, I do these edits. I think I did two rounds of editing with Lucy and she's really editorial. It's not necessarily most agents will do that or some agents Mm -hmm. will do even more. There's like a huge range. Some agents are not very editorial at all. They would rather it went out raw 
to the publisher and they could put their stamp on it. But then when um, I had Kezia Lupo as my editor on this, um, when she read it back through and this was, so I sold it in 21, wrote it in 20. I think I got my first set of notes on that in sort of early 2022. So it'd been nearly two years since I had really looked at it. I'd been writing other stuff in the meantime and, you know, there was no, no real point me doing edits and reading it for that reason. So it was just kind of there on my computer. Uh, when she read it through and gave me notes, it was amazing because you send it in and it's called like draft five when I send it in. And then they send it back with the notes and it's like draft one. You're like, oh no. <laughs> it feels like a backward step. And they have all of these notes and they're brilliant notes. Like she's amazing and she knows exactly what she's doing. And they know with the publisher what sort of brand they want you to build. So which bits to tease out. So for instance, she asked me to tease out the romance more because mm-hmm. I'd put it in a sort of a B plot, but it was creeping into an A plot. And she said, for the brand that we envisage with this, with the sort of cover we're thinking about, we think that we should tease out that romance plot even more. So that was one of the big overall edits before we even started line edits or anything like that. So it's really funny when you give it to somebody else and they have different eyes. So I guess it's not having too many sets of eyes on it because that can be a chorus of people or with different opinions. But if you have some people that you really trust, then yeah, absolutely get some eyes on it because you can lose sight of everything I think when you're editing it yourself it's really tough it's a a skill I've definitely lost a little bit from having a team yeah 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 because you I think you just you're too close to it um and you like I'm editing manuscript at the moment and it's there's parts of me that are like I I, I'm making tweaks based off notes that I made before and I've made kind of like big edits to it but I'm like oh I don't even know if People, I want to trust the the reader as much as possible. But it's like I don't even know if I've explained the thing that I'm like foreshadowing well enough anymore. Yeah, show don't tell is tricky. Like I might be foreshadowing nothing. <laughs> yeah, show don't tell is tricky on that first draft because you think, oh, this isn't obvious. And my dad, bless him, he always reads like my stuff if I ask him to. But my mm-hmm. dad's the sort of person that doesn't read any fiction. So if I give him something to read, he'll give me notes on grammar in return and Great. i'm like oh no it's like a first draft <laughs> like i wasn't too worried about spelling and grammar my mum will give me notes because she's a voracious reader she reads like 10 books a week so mm-hmm. she'll give me notes on that kind of stuff my dad will take a long time to read it and come back with notes on grammar and if i ask him about certain things he will admit oh i didn't really understand what was going on there okay. i didn't worry about it i yeah. just assumed that you knew what you were talking about I'm like oh unfortunately i don't get to have a conversation with every reader <laughs> i can't explain <laughs> Just add an appendix at the end. Yeah. It's <laughs> all the notes from my dad. <laughs> all the bits he didn't understand. Do you understand? So my love so it was it was planned out as 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 all of your 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 kind of how you work now is all very planning based. Yeah. We talk about tropes a lot. Uh check out our other podcast, The Chosen Ones and Other Tropes. Woo. Do tropes appear in your plan so this is um you know the kind of slow burn romance is a very core aspect of it i mean you mentioned that that was kind of teased out by the you and the editorial team you and Kessler yes, kind of it like, was. let's build that out but like when when you're planning something when you're kind of constructing something are you actively thinking i'm gonna i'm gonna sort of go along the line towards this trope or that trope or does that not even come into it so that definitely has not come into it before I started writing stuff after this was picked up and after we were thinking about brand, interestingly. Mm-hmm. So I love tropes. Um, as people will know if they listen to the podcast, like I have no problem with tropes. In fact, I have problems if there are no tropes. Yeah. Um, so I absolutely love all that kind of stuff. However, I think before I worried, um, 
And I think it can be a thing, even if you're agented, I've been on submission for three years and nothing had really happened. And you start to get, like this, even before Agora came into play with Undying Tower, that actually came through that very small imprint that had found it and sort of headhunted it and wanted to put it out there. That came through after we'd sent this one on submission. So I wrote this thinking, oh, there's another failed project you know, out on submission, hasn't got anywhere, no bites. It's been three years. Now there's a pandemic, of course, you know, because I have to make everything about me. Um, so because <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, oh, once again, it has failed. So I wrote this for fun for me. And I think before I was with a publisher, I always worried that if I wrote something, it would be like a cliche and I would do it wrong. So I was really worried about messing up the tropes. So oh. even if I thought, oh, this would be a really cool place for a one bed trope, or this would be a really fun place for a helpless window death i wouldn't put it in because i would be so worried that oh no but if i do it, it'll be a massive cliche because i'm not good enough to do it oh okay uh, whereas i know some people are like oh tropes make the book not good enough i'm like no tropes are amazing i was not worthy of putting these into my book so i didn't but now like i wrote something in january so again wrote it quickly plant plotted it all through nano rimo um and then rested it over december and then wrote it in january that one I did, and we were recording the Tropes podcast as well by then, and I did actively look for what I thought would be a fun trope. Because I think the problem is, don't wedge in a trope for the sake of it, but mm-hmm. also don't cut one out just because you're worried. Don't cut anything out because you're worried you can't do it justice. Like, just yeah. try and do it justice, like, no matter what it may be. Um, so, yeah, so I didn't used to, but now I do. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. I think it's such a, the, there's kind of there's lots of debate to go on with with tropes and things like that, but it's, um, I think if you write a story and not consciously thinking about it, it's very hard for you not to, in some way, kind of lean towards one or two tropes in that story. Because yeah. it's essentially, it's just the reason they're tropes is because they are archetypal, just kind of like styles of storytelling. Yeah, exactly. You have to be abstract to not use any tropes. Yes, that's very true. And I write in a very commercial style, I'd like to think. And I, I certainly wouldn't describe myself as literary. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry everyone um but i do think i write and i also because i plot and i use that hero's journey to plot for me it's the plot is what you hang all the really interesting characters and world building off i'm not as worried about the plot being the most original plot of all time i worry more about the plot making you feel something in conjunction with the characters and the world building so most like for instance my love life in the apocalypse started off as um, I've seen this tip actually fully enough on TikTok since I've done it. I didn't know what to write and I'd come up with these characters. So I decided to do um, a fairy tale because I thought that's a really archetypal plot. I will mm-hmm. follow a fairy tale in my initial planning stages and it'll probably change later. And I chose Sleeping Beauty. So that's why they're asleep for a hundred years. And okay. obviously there's Aurora systems and there's a spinning wheel on there. And so I did choose Sleeping Beauty I've not made that with. connection. I feel yeah, like I'm weird. Now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was hoping I would like hide it later. because obviously I felt a bit embarrassed about it, to be honest. I was like, I can't believe I can't think of anything. I was just really stuck. As I say, like lockdown all day. I was really lucky during the pandemic. Like I joke about it, but I had like my health. My family had their health. No one was on the front lines. Uh, my partner went in sometimes because he was a teacher, but mostly teaching on Zoom. So we still had an income coming in, even though I lost my income. So obviously very lucky. The worst thing I had was boredom, which is much luckier than most people. So I was trying to think of something to write and I was just really creative well was empty. So I essentially picked some of my favorite television shows on at the time. I think I mentioned Walking Dead and there's loads of references to movies and stuff in the book. And then I picked a fairy tale and mushed them together. So I was like, oh, let's do Sleeping Beauty, 
but like, why would they be asleep for a hundred years? Well, what about this? So what sort of disaster would cause a hundred years of sleep and wouldn't ruin the cryogenic freezing? Well, what about a climate change disaster? Well, why is the climate? So that's how I came up with it. So I think sometimes using archetypes like tropes is a really good thing. And you hadn't even, you hadn't even noticed it was there. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it's the Aurora was, should have been the giveaway. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And the spinning wheel on all the, yeah, is the logo on all their stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, apart yeah, yeah. from that, Jamie, it's basically not Sleeping Beauty, so it's no, fine. No, I was thinking that because she's <laughs> awake. <laughs> yeah, she, well, so. I also thought, what if Sleeping Beauty wasn't asleep for the whole flipping story? That yeah, would be that good, would be wouldn't good, it? Wouldn't Instead it? of just the prince wandering around being amazing on his horse. Um, so yeah, so that's where it came from. So I definitely appreciate leaning back on archetypal storytelling because I think that's what we connect to anyway. And that's mm-hmm. what helps the reader, if you are worried about showing, not telling and stuff. If you give the reader hints because it's a story they know very well, then they'll lead themselves down that path, even if it's red herring. So yes. I have yeah. no problem with that. It lets, doing that kind of thing really lets you mess with red herrings as well. Yeah. But there's also, I've seen it on lots of um, different, uh, if I watch a lot of like YouTube videos, like writing technique and, and video essays and things. And a lot of people say, yeah, like, especially if this is one of the first kind of, if you're trying to write your first long form story, right. find a story that you really like and mark out just on a piece of paper without any context, mark out kind of like the the journey itself, like the, the yeah. a sort of graph of like the peaks and troughs and then just map your story to that. And it, I mean, almost certainly you're not going to write the same thing. You'll, no. And you'll realize pretty quickly how many stories follow these same. But even if you do write similar things, I mean, uh, spoilers for Mr. Robot uh, or, f- or Fight Club, depending on which one. <laughs> but basically Mr. Robot season one is just Fight Club. And like yeah. the story's the same, and 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 it's not like they're trying to hide it. They play the same uh, the Pixies song at the end um, when it all goes crazy, and like both of those individually are really like interesting, well written stories. It doesn't matter that one is a total homage to the other. Yes, that's so true, actually. So this is why I think to me, I always say when I'm plotting, people ask me like, "How do you not get bored?" Because you've already plotted the whole story and I like dis- discovering the story. And I, I usually describe it as like, I feel like I'm writing fan fiction of my own stuff. Okay, make it all about me. <laughs> I feel like I'm writing fan fiction because I've really enjoyed coming up with this idea. And it's all the fun bit of writing. You know, it's not the bum in seat staring at blank page. It's the fun bit where you're coming up with the ideas. You don't actually have to write anything yet. You're just jotting down notes and stuff like that. Even yeah. though I do really long plots, like the whole plot is maybe four or five thousand words but i've written it over a whole month which is a long time to so most of it is not bum and seat writing it's just me like messing around and deciding what to do but um and you take the pressure off yourself which is yeah, a big that you, yeah, you're not massively. you're not being you're not being like okay i need to do a clever sentence here which will like set up a thing later on which is like, exactly yeah. you don't have to do any of that yet and then you rest it and you come back to it and it's really fun and i think all my books start off as i think of a, a book or story i've really enjoyed and i twist it and it's basically fan fiction and yeah. then you get into it. And then once you're into it, that's when your story comes alive. Like good fan fiction, to be honest. Usually mm-hmm. then your story comes in and your way of writing and your voice. And that's where it takes off. And then it's unrecognizable from the first thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a reason why uh, right now there's there's loads of um, Greek mythology retellings, um, yes. Arthurian legend retellings, you know, like fairy tale retellings. It's the same stories, just kind of like, fanfic basically twisted and like spun around and sent back at you yeah massively yeah so there you go let's um okay before we get to well you've already answered the last question uh Uh but 
<laughs> Before we get there, you you um, work uh, as part of the Right Mentor team. You've been in and around sort of publishing and stuff um, for a while now. What's the best advice that, that you've uh, you've received or, or would pass on to aspiring authors? Oh, that's really good. Um, I would say definitely, can I give a couple of pieces of advice? <laughs> you can give as many as you want, Melissa. <laughs> Loads of advice. How long have we got? Um <laughs> I would definitely say don't be afraid to talk to other people in writing. I spent years before knowing anyone or anything um, being a bit frightened of Twitter, seeing all these really friendly conversations going on in Kidlet, and everyone is really friendly, but it feels really clicky from the outside, and I was a bit panicked about jumping into those conversations. Um, or, say, sharing my work. I used to think, but I am an undiluted genius, <laughs> and I do not want anyone else to have any say of my work, and that was really stupid. Obviously, that is not true at all. Um, and I think sometimes when you're writing in your bedroom, you can feel a bit like, oh, what if someone else says something I don't agree with? Well, that's great. Then you can work through that, and that usually mm -hmm. comes up with a better idea. So definitely don't be afraid of getting into publishing before you're in publishing. Like talk to people, talk to other writers, go to festivals. It's fun. Trust me, it's fun. Um, and I'd say the other piece of advice I would give in terms of writing, oh, it is the perseverance thing, but I think stick to the thing that you know you love. So like me with the dystopian thing, I always knew I loved it. I did try at one point in the middle to write something else and it was not good. <laughs> it was not good. I tried to write middle grade because I thought that's what was selling. Oh, and everyone kept saying it went out on submission. And everyone kept saying, uh, this kind of reads older. Yeah, it does have middle grade themes. I don't understand. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Because <laughs> I wasn't really wanting to write a middle grade book. Like at the time, I was like, how dare you? Like, I'm a little genius. But no, obviously, <laughs> afterwards, I was like, well, of course, because I didn't want to write it. And then, yeah, trying to write stuff that wasn't, say, dystopian. So I tried to write, like, it was like a magical school, this middle grade. It was historical, though, and it was time travel. Um, and I had a history degree. So I was like, perfect. This fits really well in what they say. They say, write what you know. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to follow the bits of advice now here i'm giving advice because the irony is real um but just stick with what you enjoy writing your time will come i know it seems like a really long time when i'm going through all this timeline of six seven years before writing and then i've got the book deal but that is actually quite short in some ways and yeah the perseverance is really really tricky and the great thing is nowadays there's other ways to get stuff out there so if you did want to say self-publish or something before you get there but do not be afraid to dip your toe in the water before you're all the way there write what you want yeah yeah. Also, if you write what you what you what you want and what excites you and, and what you love, yeah. then you'll you'll always be having fun doing it. Yeah, so. and it comes across like people know if you were bored writing a scene. I sometimes have to put music on if I really can't be bothered one day, <laughs> and I'm writing an exciting scene, and I know it's just going to be boring. I have to put on like I look up on Spotify; it's brilliant because you can just type in like playlist of action scenes from movies, <laughs> and they will just give you, and you feel like really g'd up, and you, it comes across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah, amazing. Uh, well, you have already um, answered what your Desert Island book would be. I mean, it's not even a book. You <laughs> wildly. This will haunt me forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's unusual. I'll give you that. Was the Argos catalog. I, um, which... I didn't know we'd be friends when I gave that answer. <laughs> Mistakes were made. <laughs> uh, um, I think they're bringing it back, though. Uh, yeah because of the podcast that's right that was it yeah yeah, yeah. They, argos heard the podcast and they were like you know we should bring it back everyone hates these screens <laughs> <laughs> i i think they are bringing it back i could be wrong i don't know i'm not a, i'm not a diehard argos fan would you <laughs> well now that now that you're here again do you want to change it for an actual book or are you happy with the argos catalog 
Mm. My main problem and why I suggested the Argos catalog is, again, because of dystopian and stuff, I was thinking in terms of survival. Because I do not reread books. As you've heard, I barely like to reread the books I write. True. So I am not a fan of rereading books. So now I've been thinking, oh, do I take one that maybe I've not read? Depends how long we're be on this island, did it? Like, I'm a survivalist. I feel like I'm not going to be there for very long. I feel quite confident about getting off the island. Like, okay. I feel confident about it. So therefore, you know, I just need to entertain myself for a couple of weeks. Maybe even just a few days. Depends how much I'm reading versus building the raft. Do you know what I mean? Oh, okay, right. You're just going <laughs> to yeah. live on the raft now. I've got other stuff to do. I've got to like collect food and water and shelter and build the raft and get a fire going for any passing place, like that kind of stuff. So I do have stuff to do. But um, yeah, I think I would take something I've not started and something that I tried to read when I was younger, never got into. As a child, I read The Hobbit. And mm-hmm. the Similarian, wow, why can't I speak? There it is. Um, <laughs> I read those when I was a child and I did quite enjoy them, but I never read Lord of the Rings. I never even started it, never even tried it. And now I'm thinking maybe I should take Lord of the Rings in case maybe it takes it a bit go. longer. Yeah, in case uh, it takes a bit longer. I don't know. Yeah. As someone who reads a lot of fantasy, yeah. for like the modern reader and what we kind of expect from books, I would say it's not how I would... Uh, introduce you to the fantasy genre which sounds uh, uh, weird because everyone's like oh lord of the rings is like the grandfather of fantasy yeah i feel like there's an alarm going off somewhere because you've just but said it's... that <laughs> <laughs> oh god they're coming <laughs> <laughs> um it's in more just in the t- the sort of the way that um books are published now in the same way as something like harry potter i think would be the introduction to the first harry potter would not would the an editor would have changed that a lot for a modern audience versus yeah, how true. it was originally published. Because nowadays it's straight into the action. You've got to pick people up quickly. Whereas something like Harry Potter starts very slowly. Something like Lord of the Rings has whole chapters describing a field and, <laughs> and then some songs either side of it. And it's like, if you know it's there and it's coming, you're fine. But I think sometimes people think, oh, I'm going to pick up Lord of the Rings. It's going to be just as kind of uh, fluid and, and, and have a great trajectory like the movies. And it's like, well, yeah, but only if the movies stopped every 20 minutes to like sing a song <laughs> or like just pan over a scenic uh, valley. <laughs> okay. All right. I see where this is going. I see where this is going. So obviously I'm going to change my answer and reference something from our Chosen Tropes podcast and say, I'll read Name of the Wind. Yeah. <laughs> Finally. I will re- I've it got took. it on my kindle ready to go after buy a physical copy i guess <laughs> to go oh to the yes it's great and then the three of us can discuss <laughs> at length all of the tropes in it yeah once i get off the island and everyone's like oh there's loads of interviews Melissa, how did you survive on a desert island and you and naomi push to the front and saying wait what did you think <laughs> wait, <laughs> tell us about the book otherwise you're going back <laughs> read it again <laughs> amazing um well, thank you so much, Melissa, for coming uh, coming back on the podcast for the manyth time. Yeah, uh, and um, it seems weird me saying this because we talk quite a lot because of the other podcasts and things. But uh, if anyone listening wants to keep up with what Melissa is doing, follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Meliver, on TikTok at Melissa Welliver. That's right, yeah. Yeah, it still annoys me that I can get Malibu on TikTok. <laughs> it still makes me angry. Um, My Love Life and the Apocalypse is out right now. It's got a wonderful red cover with a dark green spine. Um, Michaela Arcano did a great job with that cover. Amazing job. You, you'll, you'll see it. It stands out in the bookshop. Um, to hear more from Melissa on this podcast, you can check out uh, episodes 26, 55, 72, and 87. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I will say... 
55 is a great one because that's when your agent Lucy Irvine was on and it's actually the only episode that I've ever done with um, an author and an agent together yeah that is a fun one um, getting that back and forth um, and to hear more shenanigans from the both of us alongside Naomi Gibson check out our other podcast The Chosen Ones and other tropes to make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast uh, follow along on Twitter Instagram TikTok and Facebook and to support me and the show you can head over to the Patreon page thanks again to Melissa and thanks to everyone listening we'll catch you on the next episode I'm out of breath. That was the freaking longest <laughs> outro.